I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, two guests this week, they are together, ESPN investigative reporter Paula Levine and ESPN senior writer Tom Junode. And we go um, 45 minutes or so on the Predator at Penn State before Jerry Sandusky. Uh, Paula and Tom are the co-writers of Untold, the 30,000 word piece that investigates the horrific actions of Todd Hodney who was a former football player and student at Penn State University in the late 1970s, was also a serial predator and ultimately a murderer. Uh, The piece that they did took two years to report. ESPN put a ton of resources to their credit into this piece, and um, it's it's a pretty extraordinary piece of sports journalism uh, about a story that I had never heard of. I imagine millions of sports fans had never heard of, but it's really important reading. Um, because it, it does speak to a lot of times what happens at uh, university towns and sort of you know protecting the brand and protecting uh, imaging above all. But this was just a really, I mean, just an unbelievable story that, again, most of the people I think who are followers of sports, including really hardcore followers of college football, had, uh, had not heard. So uh, Tom Junode and Paula Levine coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, ESPN is currently showcasing Untold, which is an immersive piece of journalism written and reported by Tom Junod and investigative reporter Paula Levine, who has been on this podcast before. It's a 30,000-word piece broken down into four acts. You could read this on ESPN.com, on the ESPN app. There's a lot of uh, shoulder programming that goes with this from um, video components to other things ESPN has done. We'll get into this, but ESPN has really expended money and resources for this project. And the piece that Paula and Tom worked on investigates the horrific actions of Todd Hodney, who was a uh, student and a former football player at Penn State in the late 1970s. Um, And Prior to him going to Penn State and afterwards, uh, he was a serial predator and ultimately a murderer. And while everybody, I think in sports, knows the story of Jerry Sandusky, uh, this was a story that, until I read it, uh, Tom and Paul's piece, I had no idea. And I imagine I must be like the many sports uh, viewers or fans who read this piece who had no idea that this story existed. I'm pleased to be joined by Tom Junode. And Paul Levine to the Sports Media Podcast. Pretty extraordinary work to both of you. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Richard. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. All right, Paul, I want to start with you. And Tom, you can always sort of feel free to uh, jump in and vice versa. Um, can you take me from the beginning of this? Just how you lo- like? How did you learn about this? What is the origin of 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 this reporting? You actually really need to start with Tom on that because okay. his backstory on this is pretty fascinating. Tom? 
Well, so yeah, so um, I'm from Wanto, New York. I'm from uh, Todd Hodney's hometown. Um, I went to Catholic school on Long Island at the same time that he went to Catholic school on Long Island and uh, played football against him, even though he was a, uh, a much bigger star at the time than I was. Um, but I had heard of this story when it happened on Long Island. Uh, one of the first victims um, of the Long Island attacks was from Wontaw. Um, and then, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, I, I knew, I knew Todd Hodney's girlfriend and suddenly, you know, one of Long Island's high school sports heroes was on the front or second page of Newsday uh, with his hands handcuffed behind his back and his in the polo shirt with these, you know, being arrested for this series of horrific crimes. And from the very start, the story grabbed my imagination. Um, I was thinking of being a writer, but really had no way to, um, to write a story about this, but it's something that I, that I've always literally always wanted to do. Um, a couple of summers ago, I was, um, sick enough that I had, you know, like five days where I like couldn't, couldn't write. I could barely get out of bed. And so I went and took a look at some old journals and I found a journal from 1981 that I kept when I was a handbag salesman in Dallas, Texas. And I had a note to myself one day, write a story about Todd Hodney. Wow. Um, okay. So, so, I mean, you, you go back, uh, Tom, and you sort of rediscover these notes that you have, but we're still a long way from you looking at these old journals to then approaching an ESPN or approaching Paula well, what, what, and going through it. So what, how did, happened, what happens next? What happened is that a, a friend of mine um, who had um, uh, was related to Todd uh, by marriage called up and said that he had died in prison. And at the time um, it was uh, thought that he was, that he died of COVID. And it was at a time when COVID was running rampant through New York state prisons. And I knew, you know, a lot of what Todd had done and how extreme, you know, and extremely violent the attacks were. Um, but I had this idea that I was going to write an essay about like, what, what kind of sympathy do we owe, you know, prisoners who are dying of COVID and have done these terrible things. And so I, you know, I, I started with that idea. And then I called um, Tony Capazzoli. Tony Capazzoli uh, was the biggest high school football star in Long Island in the late 1970s. He also went to Penn State. He went to Penn State with Todd. And I called him up and I said, you know, listen, I'm thinking of doing this story. Can you tell me what Todd was like before the crime started and he said which crimes and i said well i said are there i said well the you know the terrible long island crimes of course and he goes well you know he also he also was doing crimes in penn state and in fact um todd ruined my life he goes because i got kicked off the penn state football team because of todd hodney joe paterno 
tried to stop me from testifying, you know, on his behalf um, and kicked me off the team because of, you know, my determination to go to, to go to court. He was friends with Tom. And, you know, so all of a sudden there were crimes in Penn State. All of a sudden Joe Paterno was involved and that's what started everything. Paula, when do you come in to the story and the reporting? I remember exactly where I was when Tom told me about this. It was like, it was in the spring of 2020 when everything was shut down, I was going for a run and I was running along this golf course and Tom was telling me about this and about these notes in his journal and about this, you know, about Todd and, and, and where he thought this was going. And right away I thought, Oh my God, (laughs) this is insane. This is, I can't, I cannot believe that nobody has written about this. Like one of the first things I did was I went to, I I went online to see, is this true? Like this is, this has never been out there. And, and it wasn't. And I thought, gosh, with all of the reporting that, that was done on Sandusky and all of the sort of, you know, institutional introspection and all of the digging that was going on and the free report and all of that. It's like, I am just stunned that nobody came across this. And so you know, we started digging into this as we could with with whatever documents we could get a hold of, um, and that process was was an ordeal. Um, we found, as you can imagine, a lot of the reports had been destroyed, um, especially the ones from state college that did not result in in charges or anything like that. And what we were able to get was so limited and so redacted, um, you know, it was a real effort at the beginning to try to piece together what had happened in state college and the women involved. And it, oh, go ahead. No, please keep going. Well, I, you know, Tom can talk about finding, finding some of those documents in, uh, Suffolk County that were related to another investigation. Well, so Tom, you could pick up here in the in the what, what is very apparent once you read this piece is just how much reporting that you and and Paula did, and it would strike me as we're not talking months here, we're probably talking years, just in terms of the um the kind of journey that you had to go on multiple states, as Paula just mentioned, redacted information. We're talking, um, you know, you get, I'm sure, one little tip that leads to another tip. You're dealing with people's memories, 40-year memories, so you probably have to interview them multiple times. Um, am I correct in my assumption that this this reporting started in, I don't know, 2020, 2021, and yeah, didn't, start, conclu- didn't conclude the- until till probably whenever you guys hit publish on the piece. Right. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I called uh, Tony Capizzoli for the first time um, in the end of June, 2020. And that's really when the reporting started. And then, you know, so the piece was published on April 11th and we were definitely reporting until, until we hit publish. Um, but there were some, you know, there were some like milestones along the way. There were some really, really, you know, dramatic moments. And because when we first started, I mean, we had nothing. I mean, anything that is in that story is something that we, you know, 
kind of had to fight for, you know, and the, the, the first sort of documentation that we found that really anything happened because there was like, there was, I mean, there was nothing on the internet. I mean, the only thing that the only place where Todd Hodney was mentioned was a, you know, 1980 um, sports illustrated story where Todd was about sort of, um, you know, the, the, um, the gilding off the, off the lily at, at Penn state. And, you know, Todd was just meant, you know, his, th- those, those assaults were just one of the things mentioned in a, in a clause of a sentence, in a paragraph, in a story. It was, it was, there was just nothing out there about it. And, but we did a, we did a document request for the case where, where Todd was convicted in state college, you know, of rape and sexual assault. And that was of, of Betsy Saylor. So we got those documents and there was no trial testimony or anything else. It was just, this was just testimony from the preliminary hearing. But in those documents, there was this one piece of paper that was um, pivotal to everything else. And it was, it was from a police report and a um, state college detective had gone to 279 Hamilton Hall in Penn State to interview Todd's roommate about five women, four, you know, four other women other than, than, than Betsy Saylor. Betsy was the only person um, whose name was not redacted. The roommate's name was redacted. The um, four other women's names were redacted. But it gave us a certainty that, that there were these other crimes. And then, and then the next thing that happened that was really big was... Um, Paula called Betsy Saylor and that's Paula's turn to tell that story. Yeah. Well, I want to say on, on that document, first of all, I, I mean, I had to beg and plead to get that even in, in its redacted form. I mean, Pennsylvania does not have great laws when it comes to requiring disclosure of criminal records. And I remember going all the way to the district attorney and saying, look, like this is this is what we want. They they were not going to give us the entire file. Managed to get this, you know, this one sheet of paper, uh, but it was it was indeed the start. And yeah, and then, so then so that at that stage we had we did have Betsy's name, and tracking her down was the start of what would become a very difficult journey. Um, victim by victim, because many of these women, uh, the name that they went by now was their married name, and and trying to find them, considering a lot of stuff didn't go electronic. They're not, you know, they're in their sixties. They're not really on social media. Uh, it was I, I'm I'm good at finding people, but this was definitely a challenge, um, and so finally tracked Betsy down in New Hampshire. And I remember the day I called her. It was one of the most uh, exceptional phone calls I think I've ever made in my career. I completely am cold calling this woman out of the blue and asking her about a rape that she reported more than four decades earlier. 
And as soon as I get on the phone with her and I establish that she is indeed the person I'm looking for, I ask her if she can tell me what happened. And as Betsy Saylor starts telling me in great detail about the assault, it is as if she is reading it word for word from her testimony at the preliminary hearing in October of 1978, which is what we had read um, you know, before calling. It was one of the documents we had access to. I was amazed. I mean, with didn't skip a beat. Just everything down to the fact that she had a tube of Clinique makeup and that that was something that his fingerprints were on. I mean, I was uh, I was absolutely astonished that her memory was so sharp on this. Considering the trauma, considering the time period, considering that I don't know what she was doing when she just got randomly got this call. And it really impressed upon me, and this would happen time and time again in the reporting of this, that this trauma does not disappear. It does not wane over the years. It is part of these women. It is part of their personality. It is part of their story, of their narrative through everything they do, every relationship they have, every experience they have, their children, their grandchildren. I mean, this was something that Betsy, who was incredibly strong, is incredibly strong. Uh, you know, it it still always became a part of her. And talking to her was amazing. And then if that wasn't exceptional enough, there was a point in the conversation where she starts talking about Irv Pankey. And when she's telling me how Irv Pankey, who was one of Todd Hodney's teammates at the time, goes on to play you know, in the NFL for more than a decade. When she starts talking to me about the day that Irv Pankey came to her dorm room after she had testified in court and, and says to her, hello, my name is Irv Pankey. Um, you know, he was in court. He heard what she said, that he believed everything she said, and that she will never have to walk anywhere on this campus again. As soon as she said that, I knew in my head, this story about Todd is, is a project, but this moment with Irv and Betsy, this is its own thing. This, this is a stunt. This story about this man stepping up, this, this male athlete, this football player, this teammate stepping up to do the right thing, this was exceptional. And it, yeah, and it just, it was, it blew me away. Paula called me right after that phone call and told me about Betsy and told me then about Betsy and Irv. And, you know, I got chills then. And I've never stopped getting, you know, chills thinking about it um, and, and listening to that story. Just hearing those words, you will never have to be alone on this campus again. It's just, it's, you know, I mean, what, what more can, can you say that says what, you know, what humans are capable of? I mean, she had seen, she had seen the worst what a human being is capable of and now she was seeing the best it was just remarkable 
Yeah. Um, I mean, Betsy Sellers just sort of strength is incredible in this piece. Uh, it's, you know, you sort of read her description of this so many years later and you just realize how remarkable a human being she was at her age. And then, yeah, Irv Pankey turns out to be, I mean, you know, just an unbelievable figure. And there's obviously race elements to this, uh, which you guys ent- uh, went into. He was, there's only, whatever, 12 uh, black football players at the time at Penn State. Irv Pankey sort of understood in many ways what it meant to be an outcast. And so I thought you guys frame that well. Paul, I want to ask you just sort of one thing about the reporting on this, because I know you've done um, this before. Uh, there's a, a one of my colleagues at my place, Katie Strang, is um, has dealt with a lot of uh, sexual trauma and rape, and this is pretty extraordinary reporting. And so I wonder just, especially when you're calling someone who you don't know, because um, there will be reporters who listen to this podcast who uh, probably most won't have to to do this kind of reporting, but some will. Um, how, how do you approach it? How do you how do you approach trying to talk to somebody about what is the singular worst moment of their life? Well, that's a great question, and um, I I keep in mind first of all when I call. Uh, I, sometimes I'm not entirely sure if I have the right person. Or if I'm calling, am I calling a, a home number where a spouse or a child might answer or sister or brother, who, who, someone who doesn't know that this happened and, and that the person might not want to know that this happened? I don't know if I'm reaching someone at work or in a place where he or she can't talk. So I am, I am very careful about the language that I use and, and how I approach what I want to talk about. So I will usually start off with clearly, you know, identifying who I am and saying I believe based on uh, information that I have and and you know who you are that you reported an incident at you know Penn State University in you know, 1978, and I was wondering if you'd be able to talk about that, and I try to, you know, like I said, I try to be as discreet and as, um, as uh, you know, non-threatening as possible. And I can usually tell right away by how the person responds if I have the right person. And then I, I just uh, will generally say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry what happened to you. What can you tell me about it? And after that, it's just a lot of listening. Before we get into um, sort of the ESPN commitment of this, Tom, um, I, I want to ask you both sort of about a, a couple of questions um, sort of that are specific to the piece. One is Todd Hodney's daughter, and she's in this piece. And I wonder just, one, how you, how you guys as reporters approached her and approached that part of the reporting. Well, I contacted her as soon as um, I was you know, setting out to do what I thought was going to be an essay about COVID in prisons. Um, and I contacted her and, you know, she, she had, she had just learned about some of Todd's crimes. She had just learned about the crimes in Long Island, um, which her family had never 
um, told her about. And she found out about him when the prison gave her uh, a couple of bags full of her father's belongings and personal effects. And she found the legal papers that tied him to the series of rapes in Long Island. So I, I don't think that we've said this yet. Um, one of the things that I found out about Todd as I was first starting to learn about him was that he had not only raped women and assaulted women in Penn State, he had not only raped and assaulted women in Long Island, when he got out on parole, he murdered a cab driver. And I didn't, I didn't know that either when we first started. That was the thing that, that, was the thing that Todd's daughter did know. She had, she had been told by her family that her father was in jail. because she, she had been visiting him in jail her whole life. She, had never, she never knew him in any other way than as a, as a person who was serving a life sentence. Um, but her family had told her that her father had um, killed a drug dealer and a drug, and a drug deal had gone bad. And that's why he was in there. So she was, she was just starting to find out what her father had really done and who her father really was. And, you know, God, you know I talk, I've talked to um, his daughter, you know, many, many times over the last year and a half or two years, or nearly two years. Um, and it's been, you know, in, intensely, intensely difficult for her and intensely emotional. But there was a moment this past summer when we were sort of had found out by this time a lot of stuff and she asked me to tell her the worst of it tell me the worst of what my father did and i did and she listened and i think it was it was then that she started forming the idea of making a statement to the victims how would you characterize Penn State's response to your queries? I would say that Penn State's response was one of caution and risk management. Um, they did not go out of their way to help us. Um, there was a lot of effort on their part to try to find out exactly what it was that we knew. And they were very curious about um, what we may have had that uh, tied anyone from the athletic department into this. And um, they were not going to make people available to talk to us. Um, you know, to realistically, I don't know how many records they had going back that far, uh, disciplinary wise or, or, or so forth. But the one thing that really stood out to us and we included in the story was we had requested some records of Todd Hodney that, that, you know, we knew they had, and there are student privacy laws, but when someone dies, those federal student privacy laws extinguish upon that person's death. And Penn State, like other universities in Pennsylvania, uh, are kind of unique because even though they are um, sort of essentially public uh, 
universities, they are not subject to open records laws like other state public universities in other states. Pennsylvania is, is very unique in that. And that gave them the discretion to give us his student file. There was nothing saying that they could not, but there wasn't a law saying that they had to. So they had the choice and they chose not to. I was surprised, um, to be honest with you, about Penn State's response. I had thought that, that, that this was an opportunity for them to be um, forthcoming and transparent in the post-Sandusky era um, to sort of demonstrate you know, a certain amount of, of, of good faith, but that did not happen. Paula, um, you've worked on college uh, athletics stories before, college football stories before, for sure. Does this piece say something about the silence that happens in university towns when it comes to their athletes? Absolutely. I mean, if there is one universal, it is, it is certainly that. Um, there is often an effort to, you know, keep things quiet, uh, protect the brand, find ways to deflect and conflate and put the blame elsewhere, um, you know, make the argument that, oh, this is just one bad apple. And, and there's a lot of that. And that, that is universal. Um, you know, what we find typically is that it's not one bad apple. It, these incidents often point to systemic issues. And those systemic issues often, if not always, involve a lack of transparency. And that is, uh, that is definitely something that's universal in these college towns. Tom, you, um, you lived during the year of Joe Paterno and, um, and his college football success. You lived during the time of Jerry Sandusky related to Joe Paterno, and now you've obviously done immense reporting that speaks to the paternal era at Penn State. After concluding the current reporting that you've done, I, I want to ask you an open-ended question. How do you view Joe Paterno? Well, I think that this story, you know, I've been, been, you know, hearing from, you know, there's some people, there's a lot of people defending, you know, Joe Paterno on, on Twitter and elsewhere um, concerning the, the revelations of this story, basically saying he did, he did all the right things. Um, I think that he's, I think that he's an, an ambiguous figure in this. I mean, there are, there are definitely times when he is telling people to tell the truth. And there are definitely times when he is, he is, you know, telling people not to talk to the police without his permission. I mean, he's, he is involved I mean, when they found out that Todd Hodney's fingerprints matched some of the things in Betsy Saylor's apartment and had, you know, we're, we're filling out the warrant for his arrest. I mean, the first person that the state college police called was Joe Paterno. And he is involved with it until Todd is convicted. I mean, he's talking to Capizzoli and some other players about their testimony right before, right before trial. And so he's, he's, you know, he's in it. And, you know, in, in other ways as well. Um, but I, I mean, I think that 
I don't think that you can you can view Joe Paterno clearly unless you view it also through this lens that we have kind of created, um, you know, with, with, with these revelations about Todd Hodney. I mean, the, you know, before Jerry Sandusky, before Jerry Sandusky, there was, there was Todd Hodney. So it's, it's not, it's not that, I mean, Jerry Sandusky was the second serial, sexual serial predator that Joe Paterno had in his or under his administrative oversight. And it's, you know, it's not just a way to look at Paterno in 1978. It's a way to look at Joe Paterno later on. I mean, all of the Sandusky stuff happened after this. You, you would think that you would think that Paterno would have learned something and he either didn't or he learned the wrong things. Uh, this is for either of you, um, whoever maybe sort of actually did the the part of uh, making the query. Um, this piece, and you know, I I think people who listen to this podcast, if you haven't read it, you should read it. But I, I will reveal how it ends because it's been published already. The piece ends with Jerry Sandusky from prison responding to a a query that you guys made. Um, about Todd Hodney. And it's a very, you know, Tom, you're obviously a very, very accomplished writer. And it's an intentional choice by you two as the writers and reporters. Uh, there's almost an ominous kind of eerie, uh, evil takeaway, I think, when you read that last paragraph. Or I should only speak for myself, actually, Let's to be clear. That was my takeaway from it. Um, it's, 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 you know, I'm not criticizing it. In fact, it's kind of an incredible sort of takeaway, but you like, it's really like reminding the reader, man, like there's evil or there was evil within this program. Um, one, so a couple questions off this one, how does one go about trying to contact Jerry Sandusky in prison? And then secondly, and this is very much an inside sort of uh, reporting writer question, why did the decision to close with Sandusky in the piece? Well, I, I think that, I think that I, I made the, the query to, to Jerry Sandusky, you know, and I just, I, I wrote him a letter in prison. I mean, I, I, I wrote a, a letter on paper and sent it and received two um, replies in return. Um, that one that I, that we ran at the end of the story is the second one. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that I, I, sent the query to, to Jerry was not just because of what Jerry was in prison for doing. I sent it to him because, you know, I, I had written and contacted and called many of the coaches and, you know, they all had you know, a lot of the same answer, which was that, which was that some of them didn't remember Todd at all, which really shocked me given what Todd had done while he was there. Um, and another other people were like, well, you know, it was, he was an inconsequential player. He really wasn't a big part of the program. And, and I don't really see, you know, why you are bringing this up after all this time. But with, with Jerry Sandusky, I mean, the, the, I look at the Todd Hodney story as, as prelude to what happened with, with in the Sandusky scandal. And that 
letter and Jerry's tone, what he says when, when he says at the in the letter that he, it sounds like he needed about he's saying this about Todd Hodney. He sounds like he needed more help than I could have given him. Um, it, you know, it's ominous because it reminds you of, you know, for all the things that you've read over the last 30,000 words about Todd Hodney, of all the horrors that we've reported, there are horrors yet to come. And it's, you know, it's, it's about, you know, something really bad is about to happen, even after all these bad things that you've already read about. Right. It really does speak to that systemic issue in that several of, you know, one section of the story is talking to women, not not victims of Hodney's, which is women at, at Penn State during that time, uh, talking about, you know, what it was like to be there, the secrecy and and how rapes were covered up and and their reflections when the Sandusky news came out of thinking, my gosh, like, everything that we experienced in the seventies, like, of course, this is what happened. Like it was, it was laying the groundwork. It was creating the status quo. It was creating the, the environment that enabled bad things to come. And it just goes back to what we see at other universities, which is, you know, these, these incidents do not just happen in a vacuum. They are part of a system that allows these, you know, terrible acts to to happen and to and to go without accountability. Yeah, it's well said. Um, and obviously, the you know, in twenty twenty two, we sort of still see uh, it's sort of like rally around the brand, rally around the school when it comes to this stuff. There is one thing that uh, um, I'll just sort of mention this, and then I want to sort of finish up on ESPN's commitment here. One thing, Paula, that really stood out to me as I read the piece, and it's a very sort of small contextual thing, was that I was thankful in 2022 where the advances in criminology have gone. You know, I was thinking so much about just DNA and um, databases that criminologists and, and, and uh, you know, places like the FBI or local authorities have. And that's not to say that many of the same things might have happened today in terms of sort of, you know, people protecting the football brand and et cetera. But that, that, I don't know, it always sort of stood out to me when I was reading um, your piece was like, man, like the technology that existed today, um, if nothing else, those who were victimized here, I think would have had more technology at their disposal. Maybe I'm being wishful, but that was. No, absolutely. There was a moment when I was interviewing the former uh, prosecutor from Center County, uh, David Grine, and was talking about, you know, getting fingerprints from the scene with Betsy Saylor, but then not really being able to do anything with them. And it just sort of hit me that, oh, yeah, like, you know, back in, in 1978, you couldn't just scan them into a computer and run them across. There was no scan. scan. There right. were no computers. Exactly. You had to have a name. Right. And that's where yeah, the beauty exactly. of. The, the other woman, uh, Susan, comes in because the phone calls, they were able to trace those back. And that's how they were able to get the name to then actually pull the records that they had on Todd from the, the burglary to, to do the match. And it's always one of, it's one of those moments where you're like, oh, right, like we, you know, we couldn't do that. And, and the same thing with, with DNA, although 
you know, we are now finally able to apply that DNA technology to some of these old cases as long as evidence has been preserved. And that's the real exactly. shame with so many of the other rapes that were reported is that they they tossed them all. I mean, it, and it's and I, I, you know, I, I think Tom and I are still hoping that some janitor is going to be going through some warehouse in state college and will you know, miraculously come across this trove of, of, you know, evidence and they'll be able to test it. But, you know, I, I don't know if that day will, will ever come. Tom, yeah. You want to say I mean, the staggering thing in this story is, is the moment. I mean, there's a lot of staggering things that happen in this story, but, when Todd is convicted in state college of rape, breaking and entering and involuntary deviate sexual intercourse, those are three felony ones. And then is allowed to go home with no supervision whatsoever. Yeah. And that, and that Amazing. not only, I mean, has Todd been, you know, convicted of those incredibly serious, violent sexual crimes. I mean, he's also being in at that moment when he's sent home, he's being in, in, you know, he has been investigated for four other for four other sexual assaults where we have found that the women wanted to prosecute. And so there's all of that. And this is all, you know, I think I used the word Todd Hodney being, you know, prelude to Jerry Sandusky, but all of the, the horrors of Penn State are just prelude to the unbelievable level of violence that he unleashes on Long Island. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there are detectives and criminologists or whoever who would look back at this case and just like shake their head at the sort of amount of mistakes that happened to allow this guy to um, sort of even they, go. But they shook their, uh, they shook their head. Go ahead. Is the thing. I mean, I mean, yes, you know, they did. Uh, Paula, Paula just mentioned David Grind, the prosecutor. He told Paula that, you know, he cannot remember a single other case of this kind of thing happening. It's this case. Yeah. It's it's yeah I I read that and you, if you you know you, if you're not like sort of infuriated by that I, I don't know what will do that for you Paul I want to finish up with this um, and this will go to you just because uh, you've been at ESPN longer than um, than Tom has um, it, it's you know your company to be honest like when they do something stupid they deserve to be criticized I, I'm not asking you to do that there's enough people out there including on the social media universe will do that. Um, but conversely, when they put the resources to something like this, they really deserve praise. And I don't know how many other places would have given multiple reporters multiple years with multiple resources to do this. If you um, if you happen to watch ESPN this week or sort of consume ESPN products, there's multiple um, programming around sort of this centerpiece story that they're doing, including um, – a uh make sure i have this right it it's a uh it's a it's a film on uh it's an e60 film on the paternal legacy that will debut monday april 18th at 8 p.m so that's that's sh what we call shoulder programming to this extraordinary piece by tom and paula 
So, Paula, I mean, again, I'm not inside that place, but it strikes me that you guys were given pretty much every resource you needed to do to tell this kind of story. And I got to hand it to ESPN. That's really incredibly impressive because, like, this isn't Monday Night Football. This isn't some program where someone's screaming at someone else about something LeBron James did. Like, it's hard to monetize this, to be very honest. Like, you do this because you're doing it because it's a it's an important story to tell. And it strikes me that you guys were given the resources that you needed for this. And, and that should be commended, at least in my eyes. Well, thank you. And that, you're absolutely right. And, and I have to give a ton of credit to the editors who oversaw this project, Eric Neal and Laura Patel, and then Chris Buckle, who heads up our investigative unit. I, I mean, he has given us absolute support of this. I'm any stone we wanted to turn over, any record we wanted to get, any you know, even within the pandemic limitations, any trip we needed to take. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the support that we had for this was incredible. And really the support in my experience being here almost 15 years now of any investigative project, um, I, you know, I've never been able to not do something because of resource limitations or anything along those lines. And I, I truly appreciate that. And if we didn't have that upper level support to pursue these projects, uh, which are not easy to do. And you're right. They're <laughs> difficult to monetize. Uh, I don't think we'd be able to do them. Tom, is there anything you want to add before we, uh, we finish up here? Um, no, other than that, you know, working with Paula, with Eric, with Laura and, you know, with Chris Buckle was, was just an amazing experience. I mean, we, you know, took a crack at writing a draft of this thing and then that thing became a, a google document which was you know just i mean there was there's nothing there's no sentence in this story that has not been thought about and considered you know for a really really long time i mean it's 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 extremely careful work and the all the all the revelations in the story i mean we had to work for all of them and you know paula was amazing and inspiring and i learned a lot from her even uh even as a old dog learning new tricks it was it was really quite an experience yeah yeah see there you go tom old dogs can learn new tricks don't don't believe the cliche it uh you in all seriousness you guys um it's really extraordinary work from you and obviously the, the ESPN investigative team who worked on this piece. Um, the piece is titled on ESPN.com Untold, and it's written by uh, my guests here, Tom and Paula. 30,000-word piece. Again, I realize that's a long investment, but um, the, the as a tribute to the writers and the reporters, like it doesn't feel like you're reading 30,000 uh, words, and it investigates the... Uh, really, truly horrific actions of Todd Hodney, who was a former football player at Penn State University in the 1970s. And again, this just a serial predator and rapist uh, and a story that was not told, uh, certainly <laughs> in not even in full, just not told until these two reporters who I have on this podcast um, have told the story. Uh, Paul and Tom, thank you. I hope uh, I hope people read it. And I, I also hope that maybe it um, it spurs some others from that school in that era to confide in you because um, maybe, you know, as horrific as it sounds, my sense is that there probably are more people out there with 
some stories about Todd Hodney that we don't know about. Yeah, we have we have left our our uh, we have a postscript to the story that with our um, email addresses and a tip line, and uh, we do um, suspect that there there might be other crimes. And if anybody out there has been affected by Todd Hodney or by sexual violence uh, at Penn State in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, please contact us. Yeah, that's eight six zero three seven zero four eight five. Oh, eight six zero three seven zero four eight five zero. Paul and Tom, thank you very much for sharing the story and joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Paula and Tom for their time. Uh, that is just an incredible piece of uh, reporting of just horrific stuff and just a, a truly horrific and evil human being. The um, the, the again that piece you can tell the care and time they put into that piece it's really exceptional and again i would recommend going to espn.com and um and reading that piece if you have yet to read it uh the podcast before this one was lisa Byington, uh the television voice of the bucks and kate scott the television voice of the 76ers they came back to reflect on their first year being the first women full-time tv play-by-play broadcasters for a major men's professional sports team uh they were great lisa and kate did the podcast at the beginning of the year or the beginning of their year, and they've come back and uh, and sort of discussed uh, what their what their year was. I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, we have Chad Finn of the Boston Globe uh, in a conversation with me about what was going on with um, uh, baseball this year in terms of all their different places that they're having their content, uh, the resignings of Adam Schefter and Adrian Wojnarowski, what that means. Charlotte Carroll, the uh, WNBA writer and UConn writer for The Athletic on uh, what the women's Final Four was like. Before that, Fox Sports broadcaster Joe Davis, the new voice of the World Series. Great conversation with him. Before that, Paul Heyman on being part of WrestleMania 38. How to align yourself with greatness. And uh, the one prior to that, Isabella Kashudian. She is a correspondent for the Washington Post in Odessa, Ukraine, covering the war. And before she did that, she was the Capitals beat writer, also covering the Nationals. So pretty dramatic shift in in her professional life. If you like uh, these kind of conversations, head to the Richard Deitch archives page on uh, iTunes, uh, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. Uh, That's how this podcast continues. Uh, And again, if you like this stuff, it really does matter. So please uh, take a minute and uh, shoot one of those out there. It it has meaning. We appreciate it. I don't know why I would use the royal we. I appreciate it. I know Patrick Antonetti, my producer, appreciates it. And Cadence 13 obviously makes decisions on that. So thanks to Patrick. Thank you to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. And mostly thanks to you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.